helping you through these unique times. This is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, beautiful country. Happy Thursday. It is budget day. It is budget day. Government's going to spend your money. They're going to tell you the fiscal plan to spend your money. So here's what we've got on the menu today. We got a lot. We got big money, big budgets, big oil, and probably most controversial at all. The one that will drive you the most crazy. The one that is killing me right now. Big salad. Yeah, we're going to talk big oil because the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, Premier Fury, is going to drop by. Remember, he was on this program earlier this week talking about the multi-billion dollar oil project, Beta Nord, making the case. Remember that? He made the case on this program. Please give it the green light. The government had delayed it. So we brought him on, and then I asked you, should we give it the green light? And most of you said yes. And then late yesterday, I broke the story that, yes, indeed, they're going to give it the green light. And they did, and they're going to get reaction. So we're going to get one very happy premier. And then the the liberals did something really wacky. They decided to put their environment minister, Stephen Gilbo, out to defend it. Like, let me tell you something. Environmentalists are super, super angry about this. Betrayal. Like, the same week of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change saying, stop, we need to get control of our emissions, the government in this budget today has allocated $9 billion for emissions. And then the same week, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to give the green light to a project that will have 200,000 barrels of oil a day. And, and you know, convincing environmentalists that this is a good thing. This is like, you know, you're going to say to your wife, you know, like, I love you. You're fantastic. Uh, you're the only one for me. I mean, I'm going to have this weekend with um, uh, Susie over here or, you know, the wife saying, well, me and Bob are going out uh, for a hot weekend here. Don't worry. It's all about you. In the long run, I'm with you. But I just I, I, I just got to do this for the next couple of years with this guy. Like, really? So I, I'm going to bring on the environment minister again. We've got the premier who's going to make the case for, and then the environment minister who's going to make the case for, but how do, like, and this is a budget day, so the, and this is always the question with the liberals. How do you keep doing two things at once? We're going to cut emissions, but drill for more oil. So we're going to increase emissions, but cut emissions. We're going to spend more money on the budget, but we're actually going to save more money. Now, there's ways to actually explain this. I'm oversimplifying. If you grow the economy, you can spend more money on programs. And believe me, they're going to have lots of revenues because of inflation. They're going to say the debt-to-GDP ratio is dropping. That's what the prime minister said, which means the amount of debt we carry relative to our gross domestic product is actually going down. But it's because you're spending so much because of inflation. That's killing the consumer. I just want you to know. There's an inverse relationship between your pocketbook and the government's pocketbook. When you're getting killed at the gas pump and commodity prices are high and inflation is high, it's hurting you and it's benefiting the federal government. That's how it works. Their revenues are popping. All right. So we'll get to big oil. But I want to start with big salad because it's budget day and I'm going to tell you what to expect in the budget. Because a lot of it's going to be about the hot housing market. 
and the former premier of British Columbia, Christy Clark, is about to hop on the program with us. Why? Because what the Liberals are about to do today is they're about to ban all foreign buyers for the next two years from anybody, unless you're moving to Canada, you will not be able to buy a house because they want to protect the housing supply for Canadians. And you might think to yourself, that's great. But B.C. already did it. So we thought, hey, let's bring on the premier, the former premier of B.C., and find out if this is actually going to cool down the hot hot housing market. I actually have a theory that this is, again, going back to, uh, you know, you're going to eat pizza and yet still lose weight. You're going to be monogamous but still have an open marriage. You're going to, you know, uh, save, cut down emissions but actually put drill for more oil. Like, I don't understand. Maybe this is the uh, the federal government's... Um, Math, maybe I, I missed that course, but they're trying to cool the house. Get, get this, and I'll ask this to Christy uh, Clark, the former premier. On one hand, they want to cool the price of housing. I get that, right? First time home buyers are shut out of the market. Do we all agree on that? It's crazy. The average home price in Canada is like $840,000. Nuts. But so in order to help home buyers, they're going to give a tax-free savings account for first-time home buyers, and they're going to do this uh, tax-free home savings account up to like $40,000 on your first home, and first-time home buyers will be able to withdraw money tax-free towards their first home and get this, no requirement to pay it back. So you might get like a free thirty or forty thousand bucks. Now, if you had a free thirty or forty thousand bucks, if I understand this budget leak correctly, wouldn't you buy more house? Isn't that going to increase demand? And what happens with increased demand and the short supply, which we've got? Prices go up. So on one hand, they're going to say this is going to help people get uh, buy a house, but that's increasing demand when we've got a shortage of supply. Does is doesn't that basically? Do the very thing you're trying to avoid, which is make houses more expensive. Like, hello, government. We'll talk about that. And and one of the big things I want to talk about is 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 are we helping rural like in this big transition to the green economy? And what about people who don't live in cities? What about people who don't have public transit? What about people who live in remote rural areas in the second largest country in the world? Shouldn't there be a graduated tax system or a program that accommodates people that are using their tax dollars to subsidize a whole big transition to a green economy, but they can't do it? There's no charging stations. They got to drive. They live in remote communities. Like, can we finally talk about reality for many Canadians? So we'll talk about that. But it is budget day, so I was thinking about budget. So here's what happened this morning to me. You know I'm cheap, right? So I don't buy, I don't like to go out for coffee. I make coffee at home, and I'm trying to make my lunch when I come to work, right? A, it's healthy, and B, I save a ton of money. And so usually at night, I do two things. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the week, I cook a whole whack of, like, you know, chicken on the barbecue, and then I slice it up, and here's the thing. I'll just admit it. You know, I, I'm, I'm cutting the carbs, right? So I put it on like a salad, chicken, maybe an avocado, some vegetables, you know, and then boom, that's my lunch. I eat it sometimes during this radio show, sometimes just after the radio show before television. That's my life, okay? I save money. It's great. Or I eat the leftovers from dinner. I always have make a little more dinner and have leftovers. But it's Thursday and... You know, I've got one of my kid at home. He's playing rugby. He's playing badminton. He's playing hockey, everything, right? And he's eating like a horse. And this morning he's like, hey, dad, 
Uh, I'm eating the leftovers. And, and he did. He just demoed all the food in the fridge this morning. Fine. It's budget day. I've got to do two hours of radio. I've got to do three and a half hours of television. It's a crazy day. I'm just going to go and buy lunch. There's a local salad shop nearby, near my office. I'm not going to say the name. I want to support local. So I go to buy a salad. Now, this is piss. Sorry. This is angering me. I got a letter from a listener saying, don't use the P word. This is angering me. I go there, good place, not going to name it. Hey, can I have a salad? Lettuce, no rice. Sure. And by the way, I don't eat cheese. So cut the cheese. Oh, fine. So here's what's on it. A couple beans, tomatoes, uh, a couple of vegetables. And then she, the, 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 the server scooped the broccoli or the uh, guacamole. There's a little guacamole. She scooped it like it was radioactive material. She measured it like, okay, boom. Not, not a big scoop, like tiny little. And then she put the chicken on like tiny little. Like I am a six foot four, 200 pound guy. It was like, so I said, can I have like a little more broccoli? Because I did. I withheld the rice and I withheld the cheese. Yeah, sure. How much was this salad? It was $18. I wrote my wife, I'm never doing this again. Eight, who can afford an eight? This is the budget day. This is, and this is the problem with our country. People are charging 18 bucks for a walkout takeout salad. Are you freaking kidding me? You don't make Are you freaking kidding me? You don't make friends with salad. 18 bucks for a salad because it had like a tiny little bit of guac? Like my son eats more guac on his finger in the morning. In a world where some people can afford $18 for a salad and some people are using food banks, we got a problem. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. All right, I'm still fuming about this salad situation because it's budget day and I'm trying to watch, you know, watch what I spend. And so my son eats all the food in the house. Fine. That's fine. Don't get to bring my lunch. Go out. It's budget day. I'm going to buy a salad. Turns out it's an $18 tiny bowl of salad. I can't even look at it. I'm so furious about it. But this is the world we're living in. Prices are gone bonkers. And you think this big salad has got me? Big salad's really got me. The house prices are even worse. Like, you can't even afford to have salad in your house anymore. It's just too expensive. The average home price is $840,000. You add a couple salads in there, forget about it. But the government in the budget today, it's leaked out. The, the housing issue is going to be the big thing, right? This is going to be the defining thing. So here's what's going to be there uh, for housing. And first, they're going to ban foreign buyers, make it illegal for foreigners to buy any residential properties in Canada. So condos, apartments, single residential units, permanent residents, foreign workers, students. And if you're purchasing, you know, you can you can you're exempt from that. OK, how does that work? Will that really protect supply? But you've also got a tax free savings account for first time home buyers. Because, you know, yeah, it's hard to break into the market. So if you're under 40, you can save up to $40,000 on your first home by taking withdrawing money tax-free and you don't have to repay it. Like, to me, that is just going to drive up the price of homes and have the literally opposite effect that the government thinks, but we'll see. They're also going to have $4 billion for fast zoning to help municipalities update their zoning and permit systems to allow for speedier construction 
of residential properties. That's a part of that NDP liberal deal to launch a housing accelerator fund. They got to increase supply. I get that. And then they got another billion for affordable housing. Now, there's no market that has been hotter than the BC market over the years, especially Vancouver. So we thought to test out, do any of this stuff work? Let's bring in someone who knows this well, the former premier of British Columbia, our good pal, Christy Clark. And guess what? She's right here. See that? I link big salad to big housing, Christy. That's pretty amazing, Evan. You're a magician. And I can't believe you're worried about your salad on budget day. But, you know, yeah. well, oh, 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 you're, oh, you're such a big shot. You can afford an $18 salad that doesn't that stick in your craw. Well, no, I mean, you go to the store, you buy lettuce, you buy carrots, you take them home, you wash them, you cut them up. Come on, Evan. I do that every day. But today I didn't do it. <laughs> so I went out on a limb and I got rooked by big salad. Uh, well, I guess they, I guess, I guess they, I guess they figured out uh, who the suckers were. In the, yeah. In the oh, yeah. Yeah. Seven. If yeah. you're looking around the salad shop and you don't know who the sucker is, you know that old <laughs> saying. <laughs> I do. I do. I just spent eight dollars on a coffee, so I, I are feel, you? I feel your pain. Oh man. See, I, I okay. Eight dollars on a yeah. coffee. Uh, okay. Well, Let's... I'm in. The, I'm in the. I'm in the state today. It's five bucks, six bucks, so eight bucks Canadian. Yeah. I, I I tell you. I have a big thing, like buying coffee, like, you know, it's a big thing. It, it'll kill you every day if you people buy coffee. Okay, can we talk about housing? Because we are talking about prices, and everyone's trying to save money on coffee or salad or whatever the hell they're doing. But does this, I mean, you guys experimented with this in B.C., uh, banning foreign buyers. Um, so now the federal government's going to pass legislation to do that. What's your read on that, Christy Clark? Uh, didn't turn out to work. We thought it would. We did it with the best of intention. We went in and we did it in 2016. Prices dropped really briefly, and then they went back up again. And of course, what we also learned is, you know, it wasn't. We we thought, okay, well, we'll get rid of the foreign buyers. Maybe they're finding a way around it, and you know, it's really hard to administer and all that stuff. Okay, maybe it's just that we can't keep track of it. Well, then foreigners stopped coming because there was a pandemic. And prices have gone up even more. I mean, they're at historically high prices, despite the fact that there's a foreign buyer's tax in since 2016. It's been increased since then. We had a pandemic when everybody stopped coming. And what it turned out to be is it's Canadians. It's local people that are driving up the housing market. That's, you know, and... Even in Vancouver, like everyone thought, God, people, you know, people thought, you know, people are parking their money from Asia over in Vancouver. And they're thinking that's there's all these mega mansions that are sitting empty uh, most of the year. And you're saying even in Vancouver, um, where that was such a phenomena, when you banned foreign buyers, it didn't really have a long term material impact on home prices. No, it didn't because I mean, what we started tracking foreign buyers for the first time as part of this. And what we discovered is that, you know, most people, it was a little bit racist. You know, the, most people blamed it on Chinese buyers, but it turned out Iranians, Germans, Americans, there, there were a lot of foreign buyers from a lot of different countries. Right. They only make up about, but it's only about 5%, 90, over 95% of the homes that are sold in Vancouver and Toronto are sold to Canadians. And so if you want to solve the housing problem, you've either got to figure out how to stop Canadians from buying homes, which isn't really the point, or you've got to figure out really how you can build a lot more homes. Because, you know, if you anybody who remembers their economics class from grade 11, there's supply, there's demand, it drives price. You can't really control demand. Mm-hmm. 
but you can do something about supply. And I think that's where government's got to focus. Yeah, speaking to Christy Clark, the former premier of British Columbia on the foreign, you know, banning foreign buyers. I like what you said. You're right. There's kind of a, a tinge of racism in that whole thing. Like, let's stop the X people from doing this or not. But in the end, it didn't matter. And so you don't have high hopes that the, the federal government's two-year ban on foreign buyers is going to have any material impact on um, either housing A supply or B price. And in fact, I think because it's such a, I don't, I don't think it'll make any difference at all. In fact, we, we, if there was anything that could have proven that, Evan, it was the pandemic when prices have still gone crazy and there haven't been foreigners even allowed many of them to even land in the country. So that's one thing. But I think we should also remember big blood instrument like that at the federal level could have really um, unexpected impacts on smaller tourist towns in places. So you think about um, little, um, you know, little towns like Collingwood near Toronto, little ski towns. You think about um, places like Kamloops in BC, where have, they have they have a lot of foreign students coming in. They don't want to scare foreigners away. That is their bread and butter. That's what supports the whole community and working. Right. So, you know, governments need to, if they're going to do this for political reasons, and it turns out it's just politics, they need to make sure that it's a sharply tuned instrument, that you're not mm. hurting places you know without without um, thinking without really thinking it through and the federal government is so far away from all of those communities that it's very you know they just can't sharpen it up enough and i think it'll actually have a lot of negative impact negative impact and then by the way expensive to administer what about this notion the the other notion is they're saying hey there, there's a home buy, a first time home buyers tax uh, break here uh, you can get up to $40,000 if you're under 40. Um, sure helps a young person buy. I'm not saying it doesn't. Isn't that just going to drive up demand and prices? It will, unless you also try and increase supply substantially, right? So there have to be a lot more houses built. That's the problem. I mean, I don't have any argument with making it with supporting first-time home buyers. I think we should be doing that. No doubt. It's really hard for people to get in and you know, we've got a whole generation of young people who never have given up on ever owning their own home. Yeah. But the problem is so we can help them on the money side. But honestly, if there's nothing to buy, 40 grand isn't going to help you very much. And so really, we've got to get down to the level of municipal governments. And, you know, you look at Toronto and Vancouver in particular, we had municipal governments for years that built low income, low cost housing right. for people who were homeless and extremely expensive housing for people who were extremely rich and the middle class got complete. Like there's literally nothing left. Yeah. They got for killed. People who are truly middle class. Oh, well, okay. So I'm speaking to Christy Clark, the former premier of BC. I'm going to do texts and calls on this. Remember when you did that texts and calls, Christy Clark was a great radio host. You, if you want to stick around in Chicago <laughs> and sip on your $28 coffee and, and take calls, you can, but I know you're probably busy. Um, God, lay off the expensive coffee. But if I, I, I want to ask people if it, if this banning foreign home buyers is a good is a good thing. So I'll take calls across our beautiful country, even from uh, beautiful Vancouver and Victoria and Kamloops, where we broadcast one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Christy, if you want to stick, great. If you don't, love you. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your insight as always. And seriously, man, I will lay off buying the salad if you lay off buying the expensive coffee. It's a deal. I'm making it home in my in my drip coffee maker from now on. Yeah, see, look at us. Budget. We're budget people. We're kids. All right, we'll take texts and calls. Thanks, Christy. Lots to come on the Evan Sullivan Show.
sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program, uh, beautiful country. What a, what a great moment here. We're doing Budget Day consultation on Budget Day. I'll join Lisa Laflamme on television at 4 o'clock after this show for the budget special on CTV. We'll break it all down. Then I'll be on Power Play for two hours hosting a special. Uh, Christian Freeland, the finance minister, will join me. Candace Bergen, the leader of the Conservatives, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP. We'll have the leader of the Greens and the Bloc. Everyone will be on the show, and we'll have stakeholders, and it'll be two hours of budget palooza. But the big element in the budget is is is... $10 $10 billion on housing. One of them is banning foreign home buyers. And is it going to work? Well, BC tried it. And no one knows this file better than the former premier of BC, the great Christy Clark. She has been kind enough to stay with us. Um, and uh, Christy, great. I'm, I really appreciate it. I've got my texts and calls at 71010 and one eight five five six three three are blowing up. Um, but before we, um, we, we take texts and calls, and if you want to ask, Christy, anything about how to lower the price of housing? Do during the break, Christy, I took a bite of this eighteen dollars salad that I got uh, rooked into. It's good. <laughs> was it, was it, it really? It was every bite? Did you say that's another fifty cents? Well, I, I'm not. I just take took a couple. I hate to say this, I because I'm railing again. It's. It, I wouldn't say it's an eighteen dollar bowl, but it's a damn good salad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're. I'm glad you got your money's worth. Evan. I didn't get that my money's awesome. worth, but but you know, eleven bucks maybe. Yeah, eighteen no, but yeah. it's a damn good salad. Uh, you okay. know, you know what, Evan? We we should worry about the how the price of food in for Canadians, but you know, for everybody in the rest of the world who is living a day away from starvation. Yeah, this is going to be this is going to be a human disaster. Uh, around the world, the likes of which we haven't seen in a very, very, very long time. And I, you know, it's fun to kind of draw attention to it for sure. But I, that thought is never far away from me. No, you're right. And, and, I, and if you know the food bank situation, we've got record numbers of people in food banks. We've got inflation at a 30 year high and we've got a disparity between between um, the rich and the poor, and, and we got a big problem. We're going to have food shortages because of the war. Fuel prices are high. Um, we got an affordability crisis, and the home issue is massive. Um, here, here's a question for you, um, uh, and people are, are texting me on that. Evan, I love the show. When it comes to housing, what about seniors? I worked hard all my life. I'm forced to sell my home as a result of a husband leaving me after 43 years. I'm in Milton. I can't afford to buy. Rent is 2000 I feel like we're forgotten. How do you answer her, Christy Clark? Well, um, that you know, that's not an uncommon problem. And, um, you know, we kind of assume that everybody who owns a home has tons of equity. They're going to be fine. They can just go afford to live somewhere else that's a little bit less expensive. And that isn't the reality for a lot of people. For someone like her, governments, municipal governments in particular, and one of the things that's good in the federal budget will be encouraging municipal governments to try and do things differently Hard for the federal government to do that because they're so far away jurisdictionally. But municipal governments need to figure, like, need to stop building housing just for rich people. They need to be making land available and working with the private sector to build housing for middle class and lower middle class people, including rental that's affordable for people. It doesn't have to be free. It doesn't have to be low income. But there are a lot of people just like your a texter, your listener, 
who are kind of just on the edge, you know? Yeah. She's been making it. She's okay now. Something changes, and she crashes. That's what municipal governments, those are the people municipal governments in Canada have ignored. Yeah, and, and affordable housing, there's another billion dollars for affordable housing. There's $4 billion to rezone, to actually expedite building. But again, is that really the federal government? Is that First of all, is that even enough to make a material difference? Michael in Montreal, you're on the line with the former premier of B.C., Christy Clark. Hello, Evan and Christy. Don't excommunicate foreign and or domestic speculators from purchasing for revenue and profiting down the road. Provide a 10 to 15 percent surcharge or more on the purchase price. This will go to municipalities in which it was bought to help underwrite the cost for social and affordable housing. On the other hand, permit first-time home buyers to claim a full income tax expense for annual interest on the first 750000 of the mortgage. Wow, you've thought about this. Christy, what do you think? That, that, that's interesting. Go for it. I think he's on the right track in as much as the federal government should be using its taxing power, its ability to rewrite the tax code to make these changes, because that's something they are they can control. You know, give it, the feds are transferring money to the provincial and federal governments, you know, it takes too long. It's hard to do. There's never enough money for a country as big as this one and a problem as acute as this one. What he's talking about is going in. So, like, make it way cheaper, like, in terms of your tax treatment, to build more rental housing. For The federal government can do that. Figure out how to give tax rebates to seniors if they're renting or if they're buying. I mean, there's just a ton that they can do right. through the tax system. And you know what? They don't like doing it because it costs them tax revenue. And they're not like they're interested in spending money. They're not interested in having less money come to the government. And I and I do really think that that is the one and only really useful thing that the federal government can do on this. And don't underestimate how hugely important that can be right. if it's really targeted and if it's the if the tax benefits are big uh someone's here this is an interesting one from a former real estate agent this is great if the government wants to reduce house prices they need to legislate realtor commission fees right now if i sell my house i pay five percent commission right on two and a half percent between each uh, agent. That's almost 60 grand extra. I will ask for my house. Reduce the fees to 2%. Everyone wins. I was an agent for 30 years. There's no need for a few hours of work to equal more than the average Canadian makes in a year. Address that. Now, I know the market's addressing that, but that's not an interesting proposal, is it, Christy? It's not It's not uninteresting. I mean, governments don't like doing that stuff because realtors are, you know, they're they're very active politically, yes, yes, but it's right. not a terrible idea. I mean, people should remember, though, that you always have the option to negotiate that 3 or 4% that that's you're right. going to pay the, I mean, that's all negotiable. And there are lots of sellers out there now who are doing 2% and 1% for the, for the work that they do. But, you know, I mean, when it's a really tough market, and it's sometimes even hard to find a realtor in Toronto or Vancouver or places where it's really tight and really, really hot, um, you don't get a chance necessarily to negotiate. So that's something that provincial governments could think about right. for sure. But, you know, Evan, the problem is, too, the federal government wants to try and do stuff so they look like they're doing something in an area where they really can't do that much. That, that, is, that is a huge issue. Like, is it, is it politics? I, I, I got two minutes, and Fred's a builder, and I just think this is a really important. 
Uh, building is bloody expensive now, Fred. Real quick, you're on with Christy Clark, the former premier. Supplies are so expensive. Go for it. I listen to you guys all the time, but now it's gotten to my craw. What does the government consider affordable housing? Someone making $15 an hour certainly can't afford a $400,000, $500,000 townhome. I'd like to know what they consider affordable. And, and what's your experience, just quickly, as a builder? The, it, it, it's just bloody awful, especially when you have to pay uh, uh, close to 120000 per unit, and that's just for uh, hard and soft costs. Right. So if I buy a lot, for instance, for 350000 in Toronto, which is impossible to find, and it costs me another 300 to build a half-decent townhome, how is a fifteen dollar an hour per make a person making that kind of money? So, so Fred, let me just because I got a minute here. Uh, affordable housing in general is usually uh, the cost of is is a house that someone who is making below the median median income can buy. So it's like below, I think in Canada, what is it, Christy, about 55, 58,000 bucks. So a house that is affordable for that. Now, is that even possible? That's a huge question. It's possible. Governments, though, and Fred will probably tell you this, one of the biggest additional costs in housing are municipal taxes. So when when you're a builder, you go in, they say, You've got to pay extra for this. You've got to pay extra for that. You've got so. Okay, Christy, Christy, hold on. I got to thank you. Come, come back thank on. I'm, I'm running out of time. Christy Clark, Premier, former Premier of BC. <laughs> Love having you on. Hugely relevant topic. I got to take a break. Welcome to radio. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Well, folks, here's what I'm going to do. We've got Scott Reed for overhyped and underplayed. We've got Riskin at all with Dan Riskin, who actually is going to break a story for us on why worms might help allergies. What? That guy's always got something, right? Eating worms may help cure allergy. Anyway, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to it. I got the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador on the multi-billion dollar oil project that just got the green light yesterday. And then I'm going to grill the environment minister who's selling Canadians on, on this uh, emissions reduction plan one day and then pumping out an oil rig the next. So we'll, we'll, we'll try to square that circle. So I got a lot coming on. But because it's budget day, and we just had this crazy amount of calls on, on housing. Housing's so big. How to lower house prices. That I'm going to just keep the calls coming because I hate cutting them off. It was great to have the former premier of um, BC, Christy Clark, on. 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Do you think this federal budget... Uh, which is going to ban foreigners from buying homes for two years. That's going to have about $10 billion in various programs to try to lower the cost, including for first-time homebuyers. And I'm interested, if you're a first-time homebuyer out there, this 40000 bucks if you're under 40, is going to really help you. But it may just make houses more expensive. I don't know. Please let me know. Maybe you have other issues of the $8 billion on defense. We, uh, 
we reported on that. CBC broke that, and I uh, confirmed that last night. Um, maybe what Joyce Napier, our bureau chief here in, in uh, Ottawa, broke the other night, there's going to be a surtax on the banks and the insurance companies that make over a billion dollars. They're going to pay a tax. Does that get passed on to you? So one 1010 or 71010, uh, all you need to know about the budget. Let's just keep the calls coming. But I'll give you some breaking news quickly. Uh, the United Nations has just suspended Russia from the human rights body. That's right. They voted to boot Russia or suspend it from the UN Human Rights Council over, quote, gross and systemic violations and abuses of human rights um, by Russian troops in Ukraine, especially after those horrific atrocity images from the suburb of Bucha outside of Kiev, the capital. The U.S. led the push, 93 votes in favor, 24 countries voted no, 58 countries abstained, Canada voted with, two-thirds majority of vote uh, members you need in the 193-member General Assembly. So if you're abstained, that doesn't count. So uh, they're, they're gone. By the way, the Human Rights Council is considered by some important, by others a joke, because you get like, because it rotates the head, you get like Saudi Arabia on the Human Rights Council, which doesn't impress a lot of people. But anyway, I think this is a good and important symbolic gesture to boot Russia. They shouldn't be off, to suspend them off. I think this is good. It's a good news moment. Um, let's take some calls on the budget because they're blowing up. Uh, Steve, what's up? I don't understand why people can't buy a house. My mortgage is less than most people's rents. Most people's mortgage would be. It's the banks. You need this much for a down payment, corruption taxes here, give it all to the government. It's just insane. And Putin, just shoot the man and get it over with. Hold on, hold so on. We don't shoot. So much okay. You, you can't, you can't, look, I appreciate the call, Steve. We're not, we're not uh, executing public leaders here. We can't advocate for that. That's not how a world works. I, I think the guy's a, a gross dictator and authoritarian. He's massacred Ukrainians. But um, just in terms of the, the down payment, just, I just want to give you some uh, pushback on that. Um, if there was no increasing the required down payment actually hedges against a housing bubble, because when you've got interest rates at historic lows, if there's no down payment, you get the housing bubble from 2008 where they had in uh, the United States where you had no, but you know, uh, no um, job, but you could still, and no income, but you could still get a loan to buy a house. That created the monster housing bubble in the United States that burst and led to the Great Recession. So that's why there is rash. It's not corruption. It's rationale when low interest rates to have a down payment so people don't default on their mortgage. So you don't have a housing and a mortgage crisis. So, you know, not everything's a conspiracy. There, there are rash. Now, whether it's good or bad, we can debate. Uh, Dylan, what's up? And yes, I'm actually a real estate broker in Quebec. Um, I mean, we already have it costs through 35% down payment if you don't have a permanent residency. Um, and because of the language laws already, we don't have much of an issue with foreign buyers. Yet, in reality, you have fewer properties on the market at the moment than real estate brokers in the province, which is the reason why you can't really cut commissions because already. Uh, 80% of brokers don't make it past their first three years because they don't make any money. Is that but, right? Um, 
in reality, the only way to fix a supply and demand issue where there's not enough houses on the market is to create more houses. We have people who, like, at the moment, there's this myth that there's all these vacant units, but in reality, there's not enough houses being sold, and nobody wants to sell. You have to create new development. Yeah, I, I listen, I, I agree. We've got a mass. everybody agrees, we've got a massive supply shortage. My question is, what's the incentive to get supply? Like, how do you get supply that's affordable? Well, so the government would have, well, one would be to start dezoning, uh, you know, agricultural land and things like that. There's a lot of uh, like land close to the city, um, you know, like on the south shore of Montreal, for example, where, you know, you're within 20 minute drive of downtown, but it's agricultural land and they're not dezoning it. And I've, I work mostly in new development. It takes sometimes five or 10 years to dezone land before you can even start working to get a project, a project green-lighted. By the way, the federal government's giving municipalities $4 billion in this budget to expedite rezoning. Did you know that? No, I didn't realize that. But yeah, that's so so one of the things thing. they're actually doing in this budget is they've, they've allocated $4 billion to help municipalities now expedite uh, rezoning. So it's speedier rezoning for speedier construction of residential properties. They're actually doing that. That's amazing. I mean, the other thing, too, with residential would be to get rid of the, the welcome tax. Sometimes it's costing you, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, depending on the, prop, the value of the property, just to pay to that, live that's in that a, That's a foreign buyer, you mean? No, just in general. Like, uh, you, you pay some municipalities above $500,000, you are paying 3% of the value to the, to the municipality just in uh, welcome tax. Interesting. I appreciate the call. Uh, thank you. That, that, that was informative. Um, Okay, let's see what else we got. Do I have time for another call? Um, Bob, I got a minute. Bob, do you, do you have 20 seconds in you? I don't know. Bob, I'll give you a shot here. Okay, Bob. Uh, Bob. Bob's talking about money laundering. I thought that was kind of an interesting issue. Um, listen, lots of questions about the budget. He, here's what's going to happen. The budget is tabled after markets close at 4 o'clock, so we'll get more details. Housing will be a big deal, $10 billion in various programs. $8 billion, we know, for um, defense, but over multiple years. $2 billion for mineral. There's a program there that Reuters talked about. Um, There's going to be a lot. Lots of spending. We're going to go over that. Scott Reed is standing by, overhyped and underplayed. We'll keep breaking it down. You need the information, don't you? And Scott Reed is on the other side of a break. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And this is the Evan Solomon Show. Budget day, budget day, budget day. You got budgets, you got big oil, and you've got the departure from politics today, of a former premier after 19 years. What's overhyped? What's underplayed? Let's find out as we begin our Scott Reed moment of the week. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Hello, Mr. Reed. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Mr. Budget Day Coverage Master, anchor, and raconteur, how are you? Yes, thank you for that. Yeah, it is a big day. The budget day is always a big day. Um, you, you, you work with, obviously, Paul Martin on the budget. I remember when liberals actually tried to balance those things. Um, 
just just before we get to overhyped and underplayed, just pull back the curtain how massive a budget day is uh, behind the scenes. Like, what is going on in the finance minister? What's going on for the prime minister? Like, how closely do they know everything about this budget? How, how critical is this? Well, they pretty much know everything about this budget. They certainly, the finance minister should know every nook and cranny. Um, like, I, I know I'm going to sound like the old guy sitting on, uh, you know, whittling on uh, on a stick uh, over the cracker barrel, you know, now. But like back in my day, son, um, it was a massive enterprise. I think budgets are are smaller in some ways now as political events. I think that they occupy less um less space in a government's agenda than they used to. But, you know, in our day, we would start with a fiscal update in the fall, and then we would build. Come January, we would meet at least on Sundays. We would meet for 10 hours in a row every week, but we would have multiple meetings throughout the week going through budget items, multiple drafts of the budget speech, multiple drafts of the budget book, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. At least two meetings between the prime minister and the finance minister to cement those items that, you know, still needed to sign off controversial issues that needed to be sort of, you know, checked at the top, uh, then presented to cabinet, not in detail because you don't want it all leak, but in broad stroke. And then budget day was actually two days, because budget day, you would have the budget, a series of interviews. The next day, you get up, you would do another series of interviews. And then, actually, you would probably do a post-budget tour. So, yeah. we would stretch that thing into, like, four days and occupy a lot of political real estate. But, and and the other thing is that you would remember, especially during the Martin Kretchen years, there is a there should be a healthy tension between the finance minister and the prime minister. I, I, they, there should be a challenge function. I wonder if sometimes in this particular government, if that's still there. Well, I, because I think that Christian Freeland, as finance minister, deputy prime minister, and I think, you know, as one of the principal uh, advisors to the prime minister, that's the nature of this government. Now, it's not not my place to say oh, that's a mistake, but that's that's what it is. So you don't have the same institutional tension that you did have, because you're right, and I'm going to sound like a real nerd here, but you want the central agencies of government, Treasury Board, Finance, PCO, which is essentially the prime minister's department, you want those things to have a little bit of disagreement, a little bit of fight. Yeah. Treasury board says, I don't like this. Finances, I get those guys from yeah, PCO. Yeah, you want a team of rivals, so, so, so they fight it out. Well, because better things come from healthy conflict, from healthy contest, from arguing about, do we need to do that? Okay, so all five of these things are good. Which one of them should have to wait to next year because we can't do everything. We can't buy an outdoor. Uh, we can't, we can't, we can't, you know, repair the windows on the house, buy a new car, take that trip to Florida and, uh, and put a new dock into the cottage. You can't do all that this year. So which of these things will we do? I don't know. If those arguments happen anymore. It feels like it's uh, a very different culture. Okay. What is the most overhyped and what is the most underplayed of the, of, by the way, speaking of old school, the multiple leaks in this budget, 8 billion for defense, 10 billion for housing, the cap on foreign buyers for two years. Uh, what's the most overhyped and underplayed element of this budget? Well, I think I, th I think they're. All, I, I'm going to answer it in a way that's going to be unsatisfying to you. I think they're all overhyped. I think they're all breathlessly overhyped, and they're all um, they're all underplayed in the sense that they're not significant because these things came too late. They came 24 hours before the budget. That's when this deluge of leaks happened. So what do you get? You get zeros on the board. Oh, we're going to be 10 billion for this, 8 billion for that, 4 billion for this thing. I mean, it's just a sea of numbers. Numbers don't mean things. They're not information. Isn't message. And so it comes the 
day before the budget. So, you know, it captures headlines. But did it spend the last, did you spend the last month building a story about what this budget's going to be with a selective measure or two? No. So I think these leaks are overhyped. They're overhyped in terms of their significance. They're overhyped in terms of what they actually mean to real people. And people today, they're not absorbing that information because they came yesterday. They haven't had time to process what it means. And a number doesn't tell me anything anyway. $4 billion for zoning speedups? How do you spend $4 billion on municipal zoning? Like, what does that even mean? So, you know, I think the whole thing is overhyped, to be honest with you. I, my view is not really great communications work. Kind of half-assed. Really? So you don't think yeah. this budget has a story yet? Because they're trying to turn housing into the story. Well, they're trying to turn it into housing, but is and and is is that a cost of living story or is that a supply story? Is that a you know and and how how does that relate to what we were told a month ago with one leak? The very first strategic leak said it was going to be a back to basics budget, implying that there was going to be prudence applied, implying that the spending was going to be slowed down, that it was going to be much more focused and disciplined. But then the NDP deal came along, and now you know we got to spend money because of Ukraine on defense. And then housing, which is obviously an issue, but suddenly we're throwing billions of different things, like billions for co-ops, billions for new affordable housing, billions for, uh, you know, billions for zoning, as I mentioned. So, like, what's the storyline? What's this all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. When you have all those leaks you had yesterday, there's only one common denominator, big money billions and big money. Right. And I don't think that's a smart play. I don't think that's a smart play for the government. They Even shouldn't if they just be sell it as, oh, our debt to GDP has fallen because we've, you know, inflation's boosted their revenues by like maybe tens of billions. Well, for sure. But here's the problem with that. Okay. Um, your storyline about a debt to GDP ratio was one in which only a handful of people can participate, right? There's only so many people in the country that talk in terms of debt to GDP ratio. Those same people though, and here's the rub. They're smart enough to recognize that the reason the debt to GDP ratio is improving is because inflation is improving nominal GDP, which means that your debt to GDP ratio almost has to fall. So if you're if, if you're smart enough and if you're into this stuff enough that you're conversant on debt to GDP ratio, then you're also checking it and discounting it. So I don't know who they're talking to or what they're hoping to achieve. Okay, uh, how much time do I got here? I want to talk about someone in politics that takes a beating but keeps on taking. It's the last day for Kathleen Wynne, the former premier of Ontario. <clears throat> she actually lose the election. She stays on for another four years to work as an MPP. This She made her last speech. I actually wrote her a letter. I always compliment anyone from any party who puts their hat in the ring. 19 years of service. Um, and in some cases, I know Reg Cohen in The Star wrote something. A lot of the things she lost power because of the current government, the progressive conservatives, are actually championing. What, what's your sense? Well, first of all, I love Kathleen Wynne. I, I, I've worked with a lot of people in politics over my uh, time. Her energy, her commitment, the f- core decency, and I'll tell you what she has in spades, more than any politician I've worked with, courage. She's made of steel. She's got absolute iron in her belly. Um, she was an unbelievably uh, courageous leader and working next to her, I got to see it and I got to know it and I can compare it to others. And so I, I have unlimited respect for her. I talked to her yesterday. She's giving her farewell speech in the legislature today. I really hoped I could go, but you and I are going to be yabbering about the budget later this afternoon. So that's going to keep me in front of a Zoom box. But I just want to say, like, as you say, we see now, we, we, she's the kind of person that some people go, well, you know, history's going to be kind to her. 
can't even wait for history. You know, history doesn't even have a chance to get at her. Circumstances already proving her right. The minimum wage is increasing. All these other measures, electric electrification for vehicles. All of these things that Ford campaigned against is now campaigning for vindicating the choices she made and the kind of leader she was and the vision she had. So I bid her a fond farewell. And you know, we're we're going to only appreciate her more as time goes on. She's she's such a great person. Uh, you're going to join me later on the uh, Extendo Power Play special, Scott Reed. Uh, thanks, buddy. Thanks, man. I'm looking forward to it. You know me. I love budget talk. Yeah, I do, too. And by the way, uh, the Bay de Nord, this multi-billion dollar oil uh, project in Newfoundland and Labrador, was just given the green light. Now, I've got the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador standing by, but first... The guy who defended it is the actual environment minister. He's up next. How does he defend an oil and gas project right now? We'll find out. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. So yesterday, the federal environment minister approved this Baden Nord offshore mega project for oil. Late last night, I broke the story. We'd had the, uh, the premier of Newfoundland Labrador on this show earlier this week. He was dying for this to happen. It had been delayed. He's going to join us in a minute. They love it in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, there's 137 conditions on it, but environmentalists are furious. Um, so I spoke to Minister Gilbo and, and I said, look, uh, you said in, the, in, in, in green lighting this project, Minister, that this is not going to cause significant environmental impacts. But how can you have a plan to reduce emissions last week? Oil and gas has to be reduced by 42% by 2030. And then give a green light to a project that's going to come online two years before that deadline and start producing 300 or 200 um, thousand barrels a day and 300 million barrels by the time this is over 300 million isn't that like a smoker trying to quit smoking more by smoking more cigarettes not less not at all uh, in the plan that you and i spoke about last week um i i i said that that plan w- was based on a number of different data sources including the canadian energy regulator which is an independent body that projects that oil and gas production will will grow between now and 2030. So that was already baked in in our plan. We we know that that, that the production is going to increase. What we're doing is going after the pollution. Uh, we're doing it through a combination of, of tools that we're using, regulatory tools, uh, the price on the price on pollution, and investment in technology to reduce emission from the oil and gas sector. But, but I'm just trying to square the circle. Like, you, you understand why this is pretty hard to understand, that the Liberals are saying we can reduce our emissions by 42%, and yet we can extract oil, and we can greenlight a project that's going to, in two or three or four or five years, start producing 200,000 barrels a day, 300 million barrels of oil, and say, actually, we're reducing. You know, you, you know the logic is you're not reducing emissions, you're creating more emissions. That's the truth. We're not. If you if you look at our plans, and our plan has been applauded by a number of experts, uh, even environmental organizations said that it was a solid, transparent, convincing roadmap as to how we, we meet our 2030 targets. And all of this, so the plan forecast is based on forecast that production will increase by a, a 
a little less than a million barrels a day between now and, and 2030. And despite that, we took that into account and, and are putting in place measures to ensure that, that we reduce the, the pollution. That's, that, that's what the atmosphere do do needs to see. It's, it's not so about the production. I know, but, but the production, like, we can't, look, the production and the pollution are intimately linked. You know, eating pizza and drinking beer all day is intimately linked to putting on weight. It's hard to believe that you're on a diet if you're drinking beer and pizza all day. It's, it's a nice analogy, Evan, but it doesn't work in, 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 in this case. If we were letting emissions unabated, if we did nothing, nothing about it, then, then you would have a point. But, but you don't. You don't. We, we're already on track to meeting methane's emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2025. We're cutting, which is a super powerful greenhouse gas. It's 20 times more powerful than, than CO2. We will be cutting these emissions by half in the next three years, and we're going to 75 percent. But did you know? Was, but, was, but was your plan, I just tried, because you just approved this today, so you're saying that the emissions plan that you talked about, where Canadians are going to pay $9 billion in the budget, we'll find out tomorrow, to try to reduce greenhouse gases, and now we're going to create greenhouse gases on the other side. Did you already know that Bay de Nord was going to be approved and bake this in? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that the plan, the emissions reduction plan that I presented, is, is based on analysis from an independent regulator that forecasts growth in, in oil production. Call it Bidjanov, call it what you want. And, and I mean, the same is true of our transportation sector. We know that people are going to continue using cars that burn gasoline for, for some time, Evan. And that is also baked in, uh, into our plan. We know that, that many of our industries will continue to burn fossil fuels for the foreseeable years. That's also baked into our plan. But what we're doing is we're tackling all of these sectors, putting in place different measures to reduce the amount of pollution that is going up in the atmosphere and that is contributing contributing to climate change. Okay, uh, can you, there's a hundred, uh, you know the environmentalists are furious about this. They're saying like, you, you've just come from, from the uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change, which said, you know, the Secretary General of the United Nations said it's immoral to approve more fossil fuel projects. They're saying that, that we've got to stop and you're saying, we actually can still put, uh, you know, a deep water drill, oil uh, project online. Environmentalists are saying you've betrayed them, sir. What do you, what's your response to that? You started by talking about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The IPCC says a number of things. It says that countries, to, to, to prevent warming that's too important, countries need to reduce their emissions between now and 2030 by 43%. Our, our, our bracket is 40 to 45, so right there. The IPCC says we need to ensure that every sector of the economy is reducing its emission. That's exactly what's happening in Canada. The IPCC says we have to ensure that the oil that we will continue to use, even in 2050, they're forecasting that we will still be using about 35 million barrels of oil in 2050, but all of this oil must be net, net zero. So it needs to be compensated, and it needs to be sequestered. The Bay du Nord project is, if not the lowest emitting oil project in the world, it's certainly one of the, the lowest, 10 times less emissions right. Than, uh, than, than a projects in, in, but, in the but, oil sand, for, for example. I, but, but I just, I, I, I want to just push back on that, Minister, and you know this better than anyone. It is, you're 100% right, it's very low emissions, about 8 kilograms per, per barrel in terms of extraction. 
but extraction is less than 20% of the emissions. Once that oil's burned, that's a whole different ball game. It's pretty close to other forms of oil. All that, the environment doesn't care just about extraction, it cares about burning. So, so how do you square the circle on that when, I'm gonna read you environmental defense. Here's what they've just said. They've called this a carbon bomb. When the Beta Nord project was submitted, the oil reserve was estimated to be 300 million barrels. New research said it's bloomed, bloomed to one billion. Digging up and consuming a billion barrels is like 400 megatons of carbon over 30 years. That's like running a hundred cold fire plant uh, generate power plants. That, that's their concern here. What, what's your response? Well, I've talked about the fact that we will be capping emissions for the oil and gas sector and, and, and reducing them on the one hand. Listen, Evan, I mean, I, would, I don't have a car. I've never owned a car. I'm highly unlikely to ever own a car. And I would like to tell you that, you know, 300 million barrels sounds like a lot, but it's, it's the consumption of my home province of Quebec for two and a half years. So it's a lot of oil, but, but at the same time, it's not that much oil. And, and no, nothing would please me more than to tell you that we'll be able to reduce our dependency to fossil fuels in Canada in the next three or five or, or 10 years. But go outside and look at the amount of cars that, that are running and the amount of fossil fuels that we're still, still using. And even the IPCC right. says that we will continue to use oil all the way through 2050. Let's use the oil that has less impact right. on, on, on climate pollution. Okay, last thing for you, Minister. Um, there's 137 conditions on this. Um, what are they about, and when will this thing be up and running? When will it start producing oil? So the conditions are on a range of things, including one condition that has never been imposed on any project in Canada, which is that the project needs to be net zero by, by, by 2050. We, we, we've never asked that of, of any project proponent. Uh, there are conditions about local environmental impact, um, conditions regarding uh, security measures uh, in terms of the platform. Uh, and the project proponent uh, estimates that if they agree with, the, with these conditions, which we, we still don't know, the project could be up and running in 2028. So up and running in 2028, Net zero by the end. That's interesting. Net zero by 2050. So it's going to run till 2050. Says it's baked in. Do you buy it? That's my question. So that's how the government is justifying it. So they're justifying it and they say it fits in their emissions plan. You, you can text me if you, if you found that made any sense or not. If you agree with him or not. If you support this or not. But I promised you that I'd get the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Furion. What's his case? I'm going to ask him the same questions because I think this is really important. And does this help Ukraine, for example, in Europe? Uh, Premier Andrew Furion on the other side of a break on The Evan Solomon Show. we got all the players for you, folks. Stay with us. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. So, the uh, government just gave the green light to the Bay de Nord, this multi-billion dollar deep offshore oil rig off Newfoundland and Labrador. And the environment minister says this is going to be net zero by 2050. It's not going to screw up our emissions, even though now you're paying to lower carbon emissions, but you're actually also getting more emissions from this, but it's all going to net out, apparently. The one guy who's happy, who joined us earlier in the week, really pushing the government to green light it, 
is a premier of, uh, uh, of Newfoundland Labrador, Andrew Fury. He's a doctor. He thinks this is great. So you just heard from the environment minister. I thought, let's bring on the premier. He's championed the project. What does he have to say about getting the green light? This has been years in the making. Well, let's find out. Joining me now is the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Andrew Fury. Uh, well, Premier Fury, you were on this program earlier this week saying this is a good thing. You made the pitch. Days later, I think about 40 hours later, uh, it got the green light. Uh, your reaction and, and give us a sense of how, how what will happen now in terms of the speed of development. Sure. So I think this is a really positive uh, announcement, not just for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, but for the people of the country and indeed the world for the Reasons I articulated uh, on, in our previous discussions, I think it's environmentally sound. Uh, I think the principles of the economics are sound. And uh, frankly, given the geopolitical tensions in the world right now, this is a, a product that Europe or NATO allies and others will require during this time of transition. So I think, it, you know, it's a very positive decision. I think it fits within the federal and and frankly, you know, the provincial uh, goals and objectives of getting the net zero by 2050. Um, I think the rate of which this progress can, this project, sorry, can progress is, of course, dependent on the proponent. This is one of the last hurdles, but now they have to go internally to sanction. And we're quite hopeful that, uh, that they can move quickly and that there can be production by 2028. 2028. There are 137 conditions on that. Could that derail it? I don't think so. You know, we've had good conversations with the proponent. Uh, some of these aren't, weren't uh, unexpected. Uh, so uh, I think that they uh, recognize that this is a real solid opportunity uh, for their company. And, and as they recognize the value in the lower carbon emitting product that is that is there, and they recognize that that's the commodity that that the world is going to need right now during this time of transition. So uh, my discussions with them, the uh, they un- they un- they see the obviously the large number of conditions, but they're not uh, particularly worried about it. Okay, um, I talked to the environment minister, and our listeners just heard it. And, and, and you know, a lot of folks, the environmentalists are furious. I talked to the NDP; they're furious. On the week of the um, intergovernmental panel on climate change, said stop doing it. Canada gives the green light. And and, and I said to Stephen Guibault, I said like I. This is kind of like I'm going to go on a diet for my health. I need to a life-saving diet, but first I'm going to gorge on some pizza and beer. And trust me, I'm I'm on track to Not, lose weight yeah. as soon as I finish. I finish ordering two more years of pizza and beer. Yeah, see, I disagree. I think it's like you're you're selecting the diet coke instead of the regular size coke, and which is what the product, is, which is why the world needs this right now. Oftentimes in a diet, you need to make the transition uh, towards healthier life. And uh, this is like select, making a, a healthier selection if you want to continue with that analogy. But okay, although some people say you got to go cold. The environmentalists are saying you got to go cold turkey. But like, and you and well, I so, have this. So it's just to develop that argument for me. So uh, if we have a lower carbon emitting product right now during this time of transition, and most environmentalists uh, understand that this is a time of transition, shouldn't we be selecting the lower carbon emitting product versus the but, but let me emitting? push but let me premier Fuhrer, i got to push you on that lower yes, carbon emissions so so let's talk about the product you are a hundred percent right that to to extract the oil from this deep water project beta nord it is much lower emitting it's going to cost something like eight kilograms a barrel right is that yes, right yes. Yep. and i think the average international is like 16 or 17 and and the oil sands is triple that right something like that yeah or or 10 times in some or cases. 10 times right okay i get that but that's extraction is only 15% 
of the emissions. Once you burn it, once you use it, you got the other 75%, uh, and, and, and so, uh, or 85% rather. So, so what does that tell you? Like, yeah, but just do, so just do the math on that. If we're kind of looking at, you know, projects that emit 3 million tons a year in extraction versus 250,000 tons of extraction for this project, that's, that's a delta of 400,000 tons. I'm doing the math in my head here, but about that. So, you know, that isn't any, that's, that's a significant carbon footprint that we're eliminating or reducing in, by using this product. So, but once you, know, you burn it, it, like the climate doesn't, so it's true you're getting yeah, low so, end okay, on the extraction, so but once you burn it, isn't it the same thing? In the end, they're pretty darn close once you burn it. Yeah, but there's still, there's still the upfront cost, uh, if you will, the calories, to continue with the previous analogy, of 400,000 tons. So that is a significant amount. That's a significant tonnage with respect to extraction, and it's incumbent upon all of us to look at how we eliminate that, recognizing that, you know, there's still planes in the sky. This is a product that's still going to be required right now during this time of transition. So we should be using the lower uh, the lower emission uh, product, and whether that's through extraction or or the that that's an important uh, lever that has to be pulled in in meeting our uh, net net zero by 2050. All right. Um, well, listen. Uh, this is going to create just just I got about a minute here. Uh, how many jobs for Newfoundland? How much revenue for Newfoundland Labrador? Well, at the original estimates, it's $3.5 billion to our GDP. Uh, there's 11,000 work years, and uh, we're, we're quite excited that this is just the beginning, and it's probably much, much higher than that. So this could be, you know, it's $12 billion or somewhere in that ballpark to, to build, and so the direct and indirect to the GDP is 3.5, but there could be multiple more depending on the final uh, determination of the reserve. All right, uh, Premier Fury, I got just bad news for you, though, okay? Do you mind if I just share? <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, go ahead. You, you are the the second or third best Newfoundlander I've had this week because I did have Alan Doyle on for half an hour yesterday. Oh, like it. look, I can't. Right, I can't, right. Okay, Alan Doyle. And we got Tim Powers on the uh, War Room, and I, I think I'm going to seed you ahead of Powers. I mean, even though he's yeah, a good pal of mine. That's fair. I think that's fair. You, you should, you're above Powers, but... Like, is it fair to put Doyle above you as the premier? Definitively. <laughs> Mr. Doyle is, okay, is, okay, the, is the paramount Newfoundlander and Labradorian. Oh, that's good, man. Uh, okay, uh, Premier uh, and Dr. Uh, Andrew Fuhr, always a pleasure, sir. And big, big news for your province. I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Evan. So that's that, the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. By the way, he's very, as he said, he's, he's great friends with Alan Doyle, who was on the program. I got, I mean... Newfoundland Labrador does produce some fine, fine people, but I got to seed Alan Doyle up there, right? Is that fair? I mean, Alan Doyle, great big C, great. Buddy Mark Critch, he's up there. Alan Hocko, great guy, right? I mean, gosh, there's a lot of Newfoundland Labradors. But Premier Andrew Fury's been a very good guest, twice on with us. And, and I'll tell you why I had it on, joking aside. I really think when we're talking about the price of gas and the budget and all those things about Canadian energy and not importing energy from Venezuela or how does Canada use its energy and displace Russian oil or Venezuelan oil or Saudi oil. Here's a project, Bay de Nord. Now, you got to filter it through our climate ambitions and our emissions ambitions. But I So look, we've had the, the environment minister on. And no one's going to say he's a pushover. He's been accused of being a radical. And he supported this. Like, 
the guy who the conservatives say is an environmental radical out to destroy business just gave the green light to an oil project that is going to produce 200,000 barrels a day. The premier of the province supports it. It's going to support jobs. It's going to export oil till 2050. If you got Gilbo on side and you got Fury on side and you've got Kenny on side and you got the entire conservative caucus on side, like, now I know the NDP hates this and I know environmentalists hate it. But it's hard to get perfect consensus. If you get a liberal and probably the most uh, outspoken environment minister we've ever had supporting this, what do you say? There you go. Um, but I wanted you to know about that because it's significant. People say we can't get anything done. We never green light anything. Everybody's anti. They're, you know, they're against oil. Well, here we go. All right. Uh, we end our week, even on budget day, with risking it all with Dan Riskin. Do worms help with allergies? Seriously. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Risking it all with Dan. Risking he is back. It is this moment of the week where our CTV science and technology specialist joins us. Dan, we've got a new stinger. We've put it in what I like to call the skunk works, and I want you to judge it. Are you ready? Here's your personal. We we can fix it up. But here's our first crack at risking it all with Dan Riskin. Yeah, cue it up. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. I got worms. I got worms. Is that how it ends? I got worms? I got worms. Yeah, that's how I it I like ended. it. I like the worms part. I like that the, the beat has sort of a sort of a wham aesthetic, sort of a almost like a Yeah, there's a little eighties vibe in there. Maybe we could tweak the eighties vibe, right? No, I like the eighties vibe. I mean, if you're gonna have worms, might as well be the eighties. That's well the worms was a bit now 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 if you know Chris, do you want to just cue up the end there? Because that was a bit of a segue, as we say, into the um round worms sitch today, like allergies and round worms, because we're coming up to allergy season and everyone's looking for a cure <laughs> and here let me let just queue up the end here chris with dan riskin i got worms what, what is that is. okay what do we got what is the connection between worms specifically round worms and allergies let me tell you this story and this is a story that turns out to have some basis in fact it's a it's apparently a true story about a guy who lived in California and he was a landscaper, but he would get these terrible allergies and they were preventing him from not only doing his job, but pursuing his passion. And he just, he hated his, his hay fever, his allergies and pollen just wreaked havoc on his system. So he was searching the internet for a cure and he came across a, a line of discussion that people who are infected with roundworms don't get allergies. So he looked around for somebody in the States that could sell him some roundworms so he could infect himself and he was unable to find anyone. So he traveled to a part of the world where you can get roundworms naturally and he got those roundworms and then he came back to the States and he swears that it fixed his allergies. And so this is an anecdote. 
a new paper has just come out that sort of backs him up and and shows how this would work. It shows that what happens is when the roundworms infect a person, they suppress the immune system in a way that protects themselves. But in doing so, they prevent the immune system from going haywire over things like pollen. And so it, it actually is true that when you have these parasites, um, oh, your, 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 your uh, problem with pollen and other things goes away. And it points to this bigger picture question of like, have we become too healthy in a way? Like we got rid of all these parasites that used to plague us. Like for all our evolutionary history, we had worms, we had ticks, we had all kinds of things that were living off of us. And then we live in this great Canadian society with very few parasites that we have to think about. Only, you know, a few viruses and bacteria and things like that. For the most part, parasites are part of the past. But our immune systems perhaps are bored. Maybe our immune systems are used to having, you know, they evolved having this constant battle. And now in the absence of parasites, we've got more, more things like hay see, fever. See, see so- this is interesting because I would suggest that the evolution away from parasites and worms is one of those good news stories. Now you're saying it might be a bad news story. But well, like, isn't there, don't, if, if round worms have this kind of unanticipated consequence of reducing allergies, do they have other, like, it's like, okay, well, your allergies are reduced, but your stomach is getting chewed up or something. Like, is there, right. like, no, do, the, the do parasites are not that good for you, right? I right. mean, like, there's there's all kinds of health consequences that come from these. And so the take home here is not, hey, everybody with problems with hay fever, great news. Yeah, <laughs> go get around parasites. Yeah. That's not the answer. But the answer is, okay, so what's the chemical process that the worm uses to suppress the immune system? And could that be harvested into some kind of a drug that people could take for hay fever? And maybe there could be a very targeted, uh, way of of doing that. So it, it opens up the door for for some medicines that could come about. But I think really, I mean, that's great. And maybe I think this way because I don't have terrible allergies and I'm selfish. But honestly, as an evolutionary story, it is so interesting. Isn't it good that we got rid of parasites? How yeah. could that be bad? And the thing is that life is complex. And we we evolved this body that wasn't built for the perfect scenario. It wasn't built for it wasn't built for us to live into the 90s, right? Which is why our bodies all look like, you know, they're falling apart by the time we get to be in our 90s. It's because our bodies weren't built for that. And we also weren't built for a life without parasites. And so we have a few- But, but these, these parasites, I got to say, when I read about roundworms and all these different kind of worms, they're like, it can it can block your small intestine. No, they can yeah. cause lung, no. heart, neurologic stuff. Like, hey, I am I am anti-roundworm. Can can we just get grossed out? How, how do you get a roundworm and what happens? Like, can you just gross us out? Like, well, like, like, there's a like, bunch of different. It, yeah, what happens in a roundworm? Well, so in the in the case of the guy that went to Cameroon to get roundworms on purpose, he picked them up. A specific kind of roundworm called pinworm. You get from uh, walking barefoot through. Uh, human droppings and the worms. There's a feces situation. Okay, feces, sure. Yeah, yeah, go go for it. But they go in through the skin of your feet. So that's one thing. Uh, So walking barefoot through latrines is how he accomplished his goal. Oh, man, that's, oh, that's, uh, your hay fever's got to be real bad if you're walking through feces. I hear you. Okay. It's like, how bad is your, how bad is your hay fever? I will walk through feces (laughs) to get a worm. Not like, okay, keep going. Exactly, exactly. So, and then other ones you get from, uh, you know, foods that you haven't cooked well enough, uh, or for just from unhygienic uh, situations, but there are a whole bunch of different kinds of roundworms and they all kind of get through in Do different ways. Do they get ways. giant is... in your belly? Like, is that, give me the gross, like, is there oh, like you... big... Oh, you get like these big masses and then that's just the roundworms. Then you've got tapeworms as well. Oh, and God. so, you know, like there's, parasites are... The thing is about parasites is that they are this <sighs> hidden gem of of nature's beauty because they are so good at what they do and they are so evil and it's just like 
you know, like you, you can take the worst predator you want. I mean, at least they kill the animal and then they eat it with a parasite. They're just slowly sucking the life out of it. And they're just much more dark characters. And yeah, I, I just, I love that stuff. And, and I had, uh, I mean, if, as far as parasites go, I've had a parasite that wasn't the worst, but it was certainly. Oh, you've had your. Oh God, give me your parasite story. Why well, not? What the hell? Fly. I had a bot fly, Evan. I had a. It's a. It's a maggot that. Uh, so what it does is the fly catches a mosquito in the air right. and then lays eggs on the mosquito and then lets the mosquito go. Nice. And the mosquito landed on my head in Belize, and when the mosquito bit me, it dropped off those eggs. So you got some spider egg- eggs in you. No, they're not spiders. They're they're actually a weird kind of fly. Oh, and so you got the, fly. The, sorry, yeah, you got fly eggs in you. Oh, yeah. So, nice. the, well, they're not anymore. But anyway, the eggs oh. hatched, and then the maggot goes down into the hole that the oh, mosquito was drinking God. out of, and then it grows under your flesh, oh, and it grows into a bump. This well, is it, good stuff. I mean, at the time, <laughs> it was up. it was pretty neat, but it was a little unsettling, and it was so on top of my head. how big was the hole when you had the fly eggs well, in I your head? I couldn't see. I, I mean, everyone. So the thing is, once it's in there, it has to breathe, and so every once in a while, it'll stick a little tube out of the oh, hole and take a breath, God. and it'll go back in. <laughs> you are, the and best. so that's how I knew what I had because I'd have people look at my head, and I could never see it because so I had it to just part pops out. It just it just just popped out. I was like, I need a little breath. <sighs> There, my parasite's well, out. It's just Back it's like in. sticking a straw. It's like a snorkel. Oh, like it's gross. wedged in there with these spines. How, how did so it? it how did? Where it. was it? Was it like under your hair? It, yeah, it was. It was in my hair. It was right on the top of my head. And actually, I named it Georgia. Oh because God, you're Georgia so crazy. You're so crazy. How long was it in you that you named it? Did you uh, want to get it out? Like a week. Oh yeah, I very much wanted to get oh, it out. I God. squeezed it constantly, and my friends were all like, "Oh, how did it hands. get out? How did? Oh God, I had to get it cut out. I had to go to the oh, hospital good. in Edmonton, yeah. and they cut it out. And uh, I have it. I have it in my office. It's in a little. Uh, it's in a oh. little test tube. You know, you're like the best guy, and then you're sort of weirdly the grossest guy. But that is, guys, is that the like? It's budget day. I'm not saying anybody's a parasite. No parasite jokes that, there? No parasite jokes, but that was the greatest parasite story. And by the way, it's a thin, uh, I don't have a lot of parasite stories, so that is now number one. Dan Riskin, risking it all, including his parasite story. Man, I love you. Uh, thank you. Guys, it's a budget special. We're on from 4 to 7 tonight. Tune in to CTV and CTV's Power Play. See you then.